I've been getting good thermals all along. And I said, well, this is cool. This is cool. You can go down. You can go up again. You can go down. You can go up again. I started going down and there was no more up. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 57. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Our guest this week didn't discover his love of soaring until his late 20s after flying the A320 for the airlines. Ulrich Beiner tells us soaring is real flying. Join us now as he shares his adventures soaring the sky. Ulrich Barnard, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you today. How are you? Thank you very much, Chuck. I'm doing pretty fine. I'm excited to hear about your aviation adventure. You know, it's funny. I actually heard you speak on another podcast, and it's like, oh, this guy sounds really passionate about gliders. I got to talk to him. I am, and and uh, the way I am, you'd never know that I started with that very, very late after I'd already been flying an Airbus 320 for about six and a half years. Wow. So when did all this get started? How did your aviation adventure begin? That was about 25 years ago. It was uh, 1995. Um, I'm born in Germany. I'd been living in the United States for about five years, 12-year-old kid. And I visited my home in Germany to practice a language a little bit. I flew with a friend's dad in a four-seat propeller aircraft. It was the first time flying in a small plane, and I was totally hooked. I came back to to the United States and uh, told my parents, I need to fly planes. <laughs> and they took it relatively seriously. First thing we did was we got um, a flight simulator for a really, really old computer. You, you couldn't, the younger people today couldn't imagine. The graphics were really, really basic. You had a frame refresh rate of about uh, six to seven frames per second on a good day. And I was flying with a keyboard, but it was it was enough to to get me going, to keep me going. And my dad saw how crazy I was about this flight simulator. So he surprised me, took me to Westchester County Airport, which was like a half an hour from where we were living. And I got my first flying lesson as a 12 as a 12 year old. And that was the oh, wow. best thing that ever happened in my life um, to that point. So what do you do at 12? I mean, what? how much flying were you able to do? The training I did was the same you would do if you were an older pilot. Um, we did we did all the same things. We did air work. We did stalls. Um, I got to take off and land. Um, but, of course, we didn't have the money to, to really um, push it and, and, and go fly once a week or even, even more frequently. So it was kind of like instead of an allowance, I would get one flying lesson uh, once a month uh, for a total of two years. That was uh, the maximum duration of our stay. We went back to Germany when I turned 14. So I'd gathered about 25 or 30 hours of, of powered flight in that time. 
1997, we come back to Germany and powered flight there is about four times as expensive. Um, the exchange rate, like my dad was being paid in, in, uh, in German money in Deutsche Mark and the exchange rate was pretty good. Uh, plus gas was, was crazy cheap back then. Um, coming from Germany to the United States now, we think gasoline is, is cheap, but I know you think it's expensive. Um, but the whole, the whole system of, of aviation in Germany made flying here a lot more expensive. So my dad said, okay, well, you can't fly a motor plane, but what about flying gliders? And inexperienced and stupid as I was back then, I said, well, it doesn't have a motor. That's not cool. So I didn't want to do that. That's kind of the first impression of a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. And it, um, it was way later in my life that I, that I actually got into gliders and realized that gliders are not only not not cool, but way cooler than powered flight. So aviation kind of dropped out of my life um, at that point in time. Um, I was going to high school, or the German equivalent, um, finished up school. And it was 2003. And my dad asked me, well, now what do you want to do? And I'd been thinking about it for a while. I had no idea, actually, uh, what I really wanted to do. There were a couple of things on my list, but um, I'd never given it much thought. It was just kind of, I don't want to decide this now. Um, so I had the option of going to med school. I thought of becoming an engineer. And my dad asked me, well, what about becoming a pilot? You always wanted to be a pilot. And I said, well, I remember my flight instructor in the United States. He'd been just gathering hours to to make the jump into the regionals with the hope of a decade or more later going to the main lines and it didn't seem like something that was really really worth the effort at least not with the chance you have of actually getting to where you want and he said well there's an airline here that offers a really really cool training program if you get in and only about three percent of those applied actually get in then they would pay for your training and they basically guaranteed you a job at that airline. And once you got in, it was like an assessment center uh, that you would normally have after your flight training to work at an airline. About 90%, 97% of the people who got into that program actually passed and later got a job. So that was from, from the risk assessment, it was a much, much better option. I, I didn't, I hadn't realized that this existed. I saw their website. It was, all pilots in, in shiny planes and, and cool uniforms. And that, that's what I wanted to do from that moment on. So it's almost like a fast track compared to, to the others, you know, taking years to do it. And this kind of gets you right in there. That That's pretty awesome. Definitely, definitely. And I, I realized the luxury of, of um, after two years, I actually took four years because I studied aviation system engineering uh, on the side. So, but for young people after two years to actually have the option of choosing between a Boeing 737 and an Airbus 320, it's crazy. And a lot of them didn't realize how lucky they were. But of course, they hadn't been to other places where where they saw how hard it could be. And for, for us, it was just amazing. So where did your journey take you after that? Well, after the four years of training, um, I landed in the cockpit of an Airbus A320. Um, and I was hooked on that plane. I, I loved the 320. I loved 
jetting around Europe um, to Northern Africa, to the Middle East. Sometimes I had one really long flight in a day. Sometimes I had five short flights. Um, usually I was away from home for about five days. And it was just an amazing time. I was, I was getting to know all these different places. And of course, you have only about 12, 14 hours rest time. So you don't have the time to go explore Rome like you would as a tourist. But every time you would get a short impression of that city, and it was not just Rome, it was Prague, it was Helsinki, it was places you would never imagine, places I never even knew existed, cities with populations of millions uh, in, near the Ural Mountains in Russia. And every time you had maybe one or two hours to go explore, but in time that that added up to more experience that you, than you would have um, if you stayed there for an entire week or two. So you're getting paid to see the world and, and get to fly it. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> get to getting do what you love doing. You're getting paid to to work hard in an airplane. It's it's not as romantic um, and, and and glorious as it always seems. There was an article a, year, a couple of years back of uh, the glory gone. It's not what it used to be, but it's still one of the most amazing jobs in the world. You are getting paid for something you love. Uh, you are seeing the world. I mean, of course, it's 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 just like it's a nice goodie. It's an add-on on the side, but it it makes it so much more worthwhile. So not to jump off your story, but so what type of gliders then did you fly when you first experienced gliders? It actually stays within the story because um, I'd been flying uh, the Airbus A320 for um, six and a half years. And on the side, I was still flying motor planes, uh, the, the small single engine kind. Um, and I needed to get an extension of my, my SEP, my single engine piston class rating. Um, it's kind of like the, the biennial that, um, every two years you need an extension of, of the rating. Um, you need to, to show 12 hours in the last, uh, 12 months and fly with an examiner. And I heard about a colleague who flies at a local club. Um, we talked about the extension, but he also wanted to show me gliders and this was, at a time when I'd seen a lot more about aviation and I remembered how uncool I thought them when I was a kid. And I said, well, I I'm open for everything now. And it was an ASK 13. I got in the front. He was a instructor and sitting in the back and we did a winch launch. I had no clue what to expect. And it was like a roller coaster. It was it was better than any roller coaster I'd I'd ever been on, and I absolutely loved it. This was uh, towards the end of the season. Um, it was October 2012, and um, I think I think towards the end of October. Th there's no thermals in in um, central Germany at that time anymore, and I wanted to I wanted to start flying gliders right away. The club had a great selection of planes. A lot of older planes. So it was the the ASK 13 um, that that we did the training on. Uh, once you soloed, you got to fly a, a K8. Then you got to progress on to an ASK 23. That was actually my absolute favorite plane. And once you got your license, you were only allowed to fly the uh, the more modern planes. These older planes, the ASK. Uh, 13 and the K8, you had you had a, a frame and, and a fabric over it. And the uh, ASK-23, my personal favorite, that was 
the first plastic plane I got to fly. And I love that thing. And I'm, I'm a big goon. I'm uh, 6'6". And flying these these old planes, I think the oldest one we had was 50 years old, uh, the one I trained on. Yeah, you yeah. Know, some of those old old gliders are still around, but they they do the job. They do the job, and 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 the club the club actually wanted you to to train on on those older planes because they wanted you um, they didn't want you want you to have it easy. I mean, I got um, in that first year, I got six more flights. Um, they have a relatively high admission fee. Um, plus a high high yearly fee. Basically, you you pay to be co-owner of the club's property. So I, I still did that because I wanted those six flights in in that last year. Uh, then it was winter break. I did a lot of uh, a lot of studying uh, the theory. Um, I, I passed the theoretical test that winter. And about half a year later, in, in April, uh, I started flying again. April first, and it took me. 20 flights in, in three weeks. It was on, on the fourth weekend that I got to solo that plane. Oh, nice. I, I got to hear about the solo because I love all the solo stories. <laughs> it, it, it was my second solo and it was it was way cooler than the first. It was more more exciting. It was more of a solo, actually. Uh, the, the first one with the motor plane, I'd been I'd been trained so so hard so so procedurally i was i was concentrating on on all these procedures and on a precision um i was i was flying the plane well but i was i was so in in uh in mental autopilot mode that i never really got to enjoy it i i had to do all these things uh simulating flying a big airliner while actually just flying a single engine piston that's what the airlines uh, flight school wanted you to do. So I was I was totally concentrated, um, which kind of reminds me of, of um, soloing the A320 later uh, for the first time, or actually flying it, um, flying the real plane after the simulator. The the instructor at one point in time said I should take my my eyes off the instruments and actually look outside, and I realized, whoa, we're actually flying in the real world. I never, I, I didn't get that feeling when I when I soloed a motor plane for the first time, but I did when I when I soloed the glider. It was so exciting and so intense, and I was just as concentrated as as flying the motor plane, but it was less procedural. It was more more a a, a feeling thing, and I think that's that's kind of what sets flying gliders apart. Um, you, you need a very, very fine, finely tuned feeling for what you're doing. You know, that was one of the questions I was actually going to ask you is what is it about gliders that you enjoy that you don't find empowered? And like you said, every feeling like flying, flying with the seat of your pants, like it's been said, because it's stick, stick and rudder flying, you're feeling the thermals lift you up and yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's the little things of, of flying gliders. I mean, of course, it's it's the the relative silence. You hear only the wind. It's it's really like being a bird. And I think that's what we what we humans are trying to achieve when we want to fly. I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of person that that wants to do everything that humans weren't built to do. I want to jump out of airplanes. I want to fly airplanes. I want to go underwater and breathe underwater. And we, we look at other animals and, and see what they're able to do, and we envy them. 
we envy the fish, we envy the birds, and we want to do that. And that's that's what what really makes our species so amazing is that we've we've managed to do all those things with technology. But the technology has has in part gone so far. Like like when you're diving, you have this this high tech diving, um, and it takes away from the feeling. It's just like flying a powered plane or even even a jet airliner where you can get up and, and go to the bathroom and get some coffee. It's it's not what we originally wanted to do as 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 humans when we looked at the birds and said, hey, I want to do that too. You know, I have some friends that fly the airlines like you do, and when they all come back to the glider port, they're so excited to jump in the glider and go flying. And and when I was first getting into it, I thought, why these guys fly these awesome big jets are so excited to get into a glider? I get it now because I've been doing it for a while, <laughs> but it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's nice to hear that that other people feel the same. Often, often other airline pilots don't understand because they say it's it's small, it's cramped, um, and and they they don't they don't see the difference just the way I didn't see it before I started. And I'm I'm extremely grateful to that one colleague that that showed me glider flying. Well, you know, you talk about flying like the birds. I think after I flew gliders for a while, now when I get in, I almost feel like the wings become a part of me, and it's it's that much in your face flying that you just feel like you're you are one and you just go fly yeah yeah you you melt with your airplane and um maybe it, it has something to do with the way you're, you're sitting in that plane you're you're really you become part of it you don't really have that with an airliner you can imagine it and i'd like to say that on an on an airbus even though it's it's there's more computers in between um it's more it, it you do actually get that feeling because you're not holding a yoke in your hand you have your your arm resting on the armrest and your hand naturally grips the joystick so you are in a very natural relaxed position and it really is like you're melting with that plane but you cannot compare that to flying gliders and like like you mentioned the birds or or i mentioned the birds too it's the small things like you're looking for a thermal and you see the birds soaring, you head over there, you find the thermal. That's the one thing. But having found a thermal yourself, looking out the window and seeing a bird coming straight at you and joining you in that thermal because he sees you and he realizes that there's another bird there that's found a thermal, but it's not a real bird. It's you in, in your glider. So that that absolutely blew my mind. That really got me that feeling of yes now i really i really am an animal that can fly yeah i i think for me too that came into realization when i saw some red-tailed hawks and my instructor was like hey we're gonna go find lift over here where these hawks are because they obviously found lift i'm like wait a minute so we're flying but we actually are like flying with the birds and, and learning from them as well the, the place i live in in, in central germany we have uh, we have cranes that pass through here uh, on their on their seasonal migration, and there's a there's a funny story that someone called us up at the airport because uh, the cranes were were circling overhead the airport, and they said we have to stop flying because we were confusing the cranes on their on their migration, and we tried to explain to this person that no, they actually they're there for the same reason that we are. They're using the thermals, they're using the ridge lift to gain altitude to save energy.
Oh, that's cool. What type of soaring have you experienced? You talked about the thermals. Have you done any wave or ridge? Well, it was mostly thermals. Um, I got my first thermal flight of about an hour length, just a month after I um, I started. I, I really started again in, in April 2013. Um, a month later, in that small K8, I actually made it to over five hours, which is pretty cool for a plane that basically falls like a rock. Uh, but right. that was that. that it's it's got a really really uh, bad gliding ratio compared to compared to modern planes, which is again part of the reason why the club wanted you to to learn to practice on those planes because if you can fly those planes well, you can fly any modern plane. And you're slower, so you're not as much in danger. Things happen a little bit slowly. But um, at my at my club, we had almost um, exclusively thermals. There was a small ridge to the to the south that if if we had a wind coming in from the north you would you would get a little bit of ridge lift and because it's close to some some low hills I mean we had an altitude of maybe I think we were about a thousand five hundred feet and uh, the highest mountain goes up to three thousand so um, if if the wind was right you might get a little bit of wave but it it was nothing like um, if you if you go to real mountains like the Alps or, or to uh, to South America, Chile. Yeah, I, I just recently experienced some flying out west here in the United States, and I'm used to flying the ridges here on the east. And of course, they're smaller ridges, and not used to experiencing big thermals. And out west right now, they're just starting to get some of their big thermals. And I, I, I was wow, I was I was amazed. <laughs> it was very cool. That that's but funny. The, the, it's, it's, if if you're learning to fly thermals uh, and and you you fly almost exclusively thermals, it's it's so interesting to to talk to someone who who knows the the different the other kinds of of soaring and and has never experienced a thermal. And in Germany, in summer, you can get some really really decent thermals. Uh, we have um, I don't know if you call it the same in in English. We have the the blue thermals when you don't see clouds, um, so it's harder yeah. to find them. And a couple of kids from the club, they wanted to uh, they they wanted to go to South Africa because that's where people from Germany go, uh, especially in the winter because then it's summer down there. So we can't fly here, and and uh, in South Africa the flying is just fantastic, and you get crazy thermals. If you come back, it's like this is like the kiddie pool compared to uh, compared to South Africa, and you would have yeah, people right. flying, you would have people flying overland. A thousand kilometers and easy on an average day, and here on an average day you could get a couple hundred if you're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and with the with the small um, the K8, uh, which was challenging to fly, um, of course it was uh, one of the requirements for for getting admitted to your check ride uh, was also a lot harder. You have to fly. A single 50 kilometer, so about a 30 mile overland flight before getting admitted. And you can get an aero tow to a thousand meters, about 3,000 feet over your takeoff aerodrome. And with a modern plane, you could just glide that off. You could just glide for 25 kilometers out and come back 25 kilometers and land at the place you took off with basically no effort. And my club said, we don't want people doing that. We want them to have a real challenge, a challenge like it was when that rule was first employed. So they said, well, 
you have to fly with the old plane and you're not allowed to land at your takeoff aerodrome. You have to fly oh. 50 kilometers, 30 miles away and either land at the first aerodrome that's more than 50 kilometers away or do an out landing. Both is okay, but you have to land at least 50 kilometers away from your home wow. for two reasons. For, first, it's, it's more of a challenge to actually fly that old plane that far and also to actually yourself land somewhere else for the first time. It's easy to come back to the place you know, but to go to an airport you've never, maybe never even seen or do an outlanding, maybe your first. That's a real challenge. They, they wanted us to do that. That's good because, you know, eventually it's probably going to happen to all of us when we hit some serious sink and we can't get back. And, and yeah. then you have to do it. That, that actually got me into, into big trouble on the first attempt that I, uh, that I had for this 50-kilometer flight. It was, I realized when, when I was in the air that it was not going to be the day that I was going to do the 50 kilometers. So I just went over these, these hills that I just talked about because there's decent thermals there and it keeps going up. Um, once in a while it goes down, but it goes up more. And the, the big mistake that I made was that these hills are great for gaining altitude if you have a safe distance for gliding. But if you really get into some serious sink, you don't have a lot of places to, to outland. It's a lot of forest land. And that got me into trouble. As a lifelong motor pilot, I got complacent. I did not realize how dependent I was on that single source of energy coming from the outside, that I did not have a way of gaining altitude if I started sinking and there was no energy coming from the outside. And I've been getting good thermals all along. And I said, well, hey, this is cool. This is cool. You can go down. You can go up again. You can go down. You can go up again. And I started going down and there was no more up. And I'd been looking at these, these two smaller fields that I could outland on and saying that those were my, my plan B. And I came to the point that I realized those were not decent fields for doing an outlanding. Those were emergency fields. Oh no. Yeah. I realized that, that um, I was not going to get back to the club's airport. And I had to outland on one of those really, really tiny fields. And I did minor damage to the plane. But the fire department came because people called and saying a plane crashed right, right next to the <laughs> right next to the cemetery. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I was down on the ground and I thought to myself, oh, man, you just did something really, really stupid and you got really lucky. It could have turned out very different for me. And the people in the club said, you can, you can be glad that you, you didn't have a plastic plane, that you had a small plane that uh, when you touched the tip of that tree on your final approach uh, with your wingtip, that just that the wing was damaged. Because if it had been a plastic plane, that part wouldn't have broken. It probably would have flipped me over. Oh, yeah. Wow. So you actually touched the trees coming down. Yeah, just just one little tree, um, the, the tip of the tree. There were no real, there were no other trees in, in, in that part of final approach, but I just didn't see that one tree. 
So how was that short landing? I mean, it's just like lots of lots of air brakes and try to bring it in as quick as you can. Yeah, really exciting because it was it was the first outlanding and um, it was in a hilly landscape, so it was really hard to judge my my altitude relative to um, the place I was going to land. Also, I had no idea how big the field is. I, I there there were there were a couple of buildings close by or one or two cars. So I could kind of, I could judge the size of the field, but I had no idea how, how long my base was, how long I, how far away I was on final. Um, it just looked like I was on the right glide path. Um, I managed my speed and I, I touched down right where I wanted to. Um, it was, it was a good short landing, but then again, I broke part of the plane and it was, it was a close call. Uh, but a good experience. I mean, you, you can learn a lot from that, and, and thankfully, yeah, everything came out. But definitely, that's. I think it was the wake up call for for me. It was, um, it, it jolted me back into, um, into into learning mode because my flight instructors had done an incredible job of training me, but still they were they were training the way they would usually. Um, and here in Germany, most people that learn to fly gliders are kids. So you have these 14, 15, 16-year-olds, and you teach adults in a different way than you would a child. And it was it was not really adult education. But I can't – it's not their fault because they weren't used to it. They didn't realize a lot of the time that they didn't need to tell me that pulling makes it goes up and pushing makes it go down. Um, I knew that because I had 3,000 hours of, of flying airplanes. But what I didn't have, that that ingrained realization that you don't have any energy of your own except your altitude. Absolutely. So that kind of brings me to the question of, from all your experience in flying, what advice would you have on how to be a better and safer pilot? I think the best thing you can do is, don't be afraid to admit to and talk about your mistakes. Again, that's one of the things that makes us human. We're able to reflect on the things we do and have done, analyze them and talk about them. And maybe by talking about them, help someone else not make that same mistake. Because maybe that other person would have been, wouldn't have been so lucky. Absolutely. You know, I, I run into we have hangar talk at the airport. You all sit around and talk before, or maybe after some flights. And, you know, some people are like, well, I probably shouldn't tell you the story, but this is what happened to me. And <laughs> I think that that brings up what you're saying. Don't be afraid to tell that story, because if somebody learns from it and it saves them on a bad flight or bad situation, then it's, you know, it's, it's worth it. Absolutely. So because the club is, is close to an international airport, uh, we have quite a few commercial pilots who, who fly there. And that got us thinking. And so we've implemented the system of a safety pilot just as, as big airlines would have it. Um, that person could gather reports of incidents and um, anonymously uh, publish things that have happened just as a kind of share your own experience and help other people learn from the mistakes of, of their peers. You mentioned some pilots would not want to talk something, talk about something because they say, well, I, I'm not sure I should be mentioning that. Um, and I think it's because 
you would have you always have other people who will maybe laugh about an incident or tell you well that's just because you're a bad pilot or because you're stupid or and i think the important thing is to realize that it's not the fault of the person telling the story but that the people who don't take it seriously or or turn it into something uh, they can use to to make fun of the pilot who's telling the story or or uh, or put him down that those are the people that have a problem not the ones that are that are sharing their experience and helping others to learn and, and not make the same mistakes that they did definitely yeah for sure what are your plans for the future as far as aviation goes i know you're flying the big jets well yeah back back to something a little less serious uh i switched to the a380 just uh, two years ago so um Job-wise, the next big step would be to become a captain. Now, of course, we have this huge crisis going on, and nobody knows in what in what direction aviation is going to go in. I think it's going to take quite a few more years before I get to upgrade to the left seat. Uh, for me, it's it's important to do cool things on the side, and maybe more than just on the side. I mean, I have I have this this wonderful job. It pays the bills and it's and it's fun at the same time, but. For the one part, I would love to become an astronaut. It's something that probably the most impossible thing to do, but other people have done it too. So there's a chance. I'm, I'm trying to work on things that will get me into a good position for the next round of applications that the European Space Agency will be doing. So I'm learning Russian. I'm, I'm brushing up on my diving skills because those are things that astronauts do to train to simulate what it's like to be in space. My hopes are up that, that I'll be able to do that, but I still think about it realistically. And I, I realize that there's going to be 10,000 people applying and there's going to be 10 astronauts at the end. So the chances are I'm not going to be one of them. I might have better chances than maybe 4,000 others, but that still doesn't make me one of those 10. So I'm, I'm trying hard for this, but I still have to, to keep my focus on, on a future that does not involve going to space. And uh, for me, that's um, getting back into into glider flying to do it more because uh, I haven't been doing it for the last uh, three or four years. I mean, I got my license. I loved the flying, but then I started building a house. The house is almost finished now. And while it's taken my mind off uh, off the, the things that I really love doing, I I miss them and I miss I miss flying gliders. It doesn't have to be in a club. I, I think um, in Germany, you have clubs with a lot of old people that want to maintain the status quo and, and don't agree with, with the way younger people are doing it. And it's, it's frustrating. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of other, other ways of flying gliders. You can go to, go to a flight school. You can go to a rental cor- a company here and, and rent, rent a glider, and, and you're totally free. Which is not to say that I, that I don't appreciate the, the concept of a club. They told me at the beginning that for each hour you spend in the plane, you would spend 10 hours on the ground doing other things. And I appreciate that because it really builds your, your teamwork skills. You, you know that you're part of something, something bigger than yourself. And it doesn't work if there's only, if, if people want to, want to just fly. You always need a lot of help. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today. It's It's been really enjoyable hearing your story, and I wish you the best. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. 
Thank you for joining us for another great guest here on Showing the Sky. I know a lot of us are stuck in now and not able to fly, so this may be a great time to get into the virtual cockpit and do some soaring with your friends online. It may also be a great time to read that book that you never have time to pick up. For students, I know we love to fly, but you know, it may be a great time to grab that ground school book and get back into studying. There's always some great soaring videos as well. YouTube's a great one for that. You can find all that online. And if you're looking for anything else as far as soaring goes, you can always go to the SSA.org. And if you haven't heard all of our episodes here on the podcast, we do have several now. We have some great guests that share their amazing stories and, of course, always some great advice from them. If you're all caught up, we will have another soaring adventure for you next week. So please stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to you soon right here on Soaring the Sky. You can find us on social media. On Facebook, it's Soaring the Sky Podcast. On Instagram, it's the same, Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or you can send us a note on the website SoaringTheSky.com Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.